Well, today we're going to be looking at two different passages in Proverbs. They're going to be in chapter 16, verse 32, and then if you'd be prepared to turn to chapter 29, we're going to look there also. But as you're turning to chapter 16, would you stand? And we are going to honor the Lord by recognizing that this is His Word. Chapter 16, verse 32, and then chapter 29, verse 22. So 16 reads, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And then if you go over to chapter 29, verse 22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. So let's pray and and ask the Lord to bless our study of his word today. Father, as we read your word, as we look at it closely, as we apply it to our lives, help us to listen to what your spirit would say to us through your word, through me, through our families, through our experiences. Father, help us to want to become more and more like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Solomon warns against the one who struggles with anger because a normal trajectory in uncontrolled anger is to create conflict. And he adds that the person who struggles in this area actually abounds in transgression or sin. And so we know from these two and more in Proverbs and other passages, this is a serious topic. And it would be good for us to ask questions like, what causes us to become angry? Proverbs 4.23 says that out of the heart spring forth the issues of life. So, foundationally, we would say that anger arises out of heart attitudes. So when it comes to anger, typically we're talking about a few core heart issues such as irritation, especially when we face resistance or perceived unfairness, frustration over unmet expectations, envy, jealousy, we talked about that last week, also fear, fear that typically results from self-protection, such as when we are hurt or if we expect some kind of pain to imminently happen. And anger can have a, a profound effect on our bodies. You all know that. Heart rate increases, blood pressure rises, blood sugar levels elevate, and our muscles tense. The adrenal glands are releasing adrenaline. And those are all reactions that are preparing us to fight against actual threats. Sometimes, as we'll see in a bit, righteous anger can be used positively to motivate us to solve problems, confront challenges, or make changes in our personal lives. But a lot of our anger is not righteous in any sense of the word. And and instead, when we experience these various physical responses that God made for us to, to be able to react in physical threats... What ends up happening is that we have to vent that, and we vent that typically through yelling and shouting, sometimes physical violence, throwing objects, hitting things, even causing harm to other people. And, and such people, sadly, have come to often rely on anger to get things done because they know that by raising their voice, 
They know that by increasing the tension level, becoming intimidating, that most people are either going to be conflict avoiders or they're going to be peacemakers. They're typically not going to be aggressors back. And it's important that you realize in that situation, if you don't already, that your angry words might, you know, they might cause everybody to to back away. They might motivate in that moment, in that short term, people to do what you want. But anger, as Solomon says, nearly always creates strife doesn't solve problems. It creates problems. And it abounds in sin. It compromises long-term closeness for short-term results. And so harshness, violence, aggressiveness, these are discouraging trust. If you're utilizing these particularly as parents or as spouses, these discourage trust. They discourage vulnerability in the other person. And they tend to rob the angry person and and really those around him or her of joy. If we think about the very first example of anger in the scriptures, you would probably go right to the story of Cain. Genesis 4 says that God looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but not upon Cain's offering. And as a result, Cain became angry and hurt and Scripture describes his face as being downcast. And so the Lord says to him, why are you angry? Why are you so downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. But you must master it. And so God's warning to Cain is is this sobering warning to all of us who struggle with anger. Sin is crouching at your door. It is desiring to have you. And it's, it's like, as uh, the, the Bible says there in Genesis, a lion, a ravaging lion, waiting to pounce upon you and consume you is really what you need to think of it as. And, and it took hold of Cain, right? And the Bible says that Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and murdered him. And so it's no wonder that later when talking about the sixth commandment against murder, Jesus says, deal first with anger. Now don't, don't worry so much. Obviously, to, to murder someone is wrong, but you don't get there overnight. Deal with anger. That is a, a, a present problem for most people. Deal with that. Deal with hatred. And and so God is reasoning with Cain. He reassures and he comforts him, but he also gives him a serious warning. He says, if you continue to harbor anger, if you continue to nurse bitterness in your heart for a long time, this warning isn't going to stop you. And when we're hurt, when we're offended, we become frustrated, we become angry, that anger simmers Deep within us, just as it did with Cain, with others in Scripture, in time it explodes if we fail to master it. You know, sometimes it's a lot of people think of anger as that thing that happens explosively. But but I believe that, at least from experience and, and from talking with other people, that most people that explode in anger are seething inside. You know, imagine that slow boil. 
Yes, sometimes there are trigger things that bring us to a quicker boil faster. But a lot of people seethe and simmer and it comes to a slow boil, just like you start to see those water bubbles start to form in a pot of water on the stove. And pretty soon, just all of a sudden, it starts boiling, but it was not just, it didn't just get there from cold water. And so, friends, what I'm suggesting to you, especially from the scriptures, is to know this pattern in your life. Know that unresolved anger, as it simmers within you, is going to ultimately destroy relationships around you and even destroy you who harbors them. Think about your own situation. Are you an angry person? Do you tend to harbor a lot of bitterness and resentment? Maybe it's not towards people in general. Maybe it's towards a few people, those who have hurt or offended you in the past. Maybe you are one of those types of people that if if it was being described, it would be, yeah, that's the type of person that leaves a wide path of destruction behind them or a wide path of people moving off to the side of saying, watch out for so-and-so. Maybe you're not so much the type that's the violent, aggressive, intimidating type, but you're the type that expresses anger in sarcastic comments here and there. Offensive actions, you know, that little barbed statement or that harsh word that comes out and, whoa, as people respond, what's going on with so-and-so? So Solomon says that you leave a trail of strife and everyone can see it. And so they tiptoe around you. And if you look into your heart honestly when you're angry, what you'll find is you may be nurturing a grudge. Does that describe you? You may be focusing on an offense. Perhaps you're figuring out some way to seek revenge. That person hurts you. Now you're going to eventually hurt them back. I don't know what it is for you, but the Bible says in Ephesians 4.22 that the flesh is greedy for evil. The flesh is greedy for evil. Isn't that an illustrative kind of a passage? Greedy for evil. And so Paul says, put off the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man, which was created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. Put away lying. Let each of you... Now start speaking truth with his neighbor. We are members of one another. And then he concludes in that little section, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. It's interesting that as he's talking about this new man, this fleshly man, contrast, that he ends with saying, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And so he's bringing some texture and perhaps clarity to what Solomon says in Proverbs 16 and 29. Because if you were only to read those two Proverbs, you might think that anger in general is bad. But Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. James 1.19 says, be slow, at becoming angry. So clearly there are times that anger may be appropriate. So let's try and figure that out. When, what are those times? Well, probably the most off-sighted example of someone who was angry and yet did not sin would be Jesus. And that would be 
his overturning of the money changers tables in John 2 verse 13. It says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found at the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen poured out over the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, I take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered what is written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jewish people, just so you know, the context here, were expected to bring their Passover sacrifices to the temple at Jerusalem. Deuteronomy makes it clear that if you lived far away from the temple, it was all right to come and purchase a sacrificial animal for you and your family. You buy that at the temple. Additionally, each person, according to Exodus 30, was to pay a half shekel temple tax each year. And by Jesus' time, a profitable business had built itself around these requirements. You see, rather than allow people to directly buy animals with whatever money they possessed and brought with them, some of them from different regions with different currencies, what was happening is imagine an airport with a foreign exchange window. And you had these money changers tables. They're saying, okay, you you brought this over from Alexandria. Okay, give me this, give me this, give me this. And they would exchange it into local currency. But like those windows, there's always an exchange fee that's involved. Well, by this time, the exchange fees were pretty exorbitant. And not only that, but if you happen to bring your animal, a lot of times the people that were there with their own animals that were the authorities would look at what you brought and say, hmm, doesn't quite match up with the requirements from Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc. There's a blemish there. There's a defect in that animal. This one's not acceptable. You can buy this one, though. And, of course, the price for this animal to buy for your sacrifice was way expensive. And so Jesus walks into this profit-making business where God's holy temple had been turned into a place of corruption. And when he sees this, he is angry over it. And he says, do not make my father's house a house for merchandise. So what makes his anger zeal, righteous zeal, while Cain's is sinful anger? I think we would agree that Jesus was not jealous or envious of a lack of favor from either God or the world. He had God's favor. He did not need the favor of man. He was perfectly submitted to his Father's will. And so the key difference is that Jesus is both angry at sin and controlled in the expression of his anger. This is not a temple tantrum. Okay, thank you for laughing. I wasn't sure if that was even going to go over very well. This is not a temple tantrum, but a measured, intentional use of anger to point people to God. And at the risk of oversimplification, I think a good principle to remember is that it is a sin to be angry unless you are angry at sin. Like I said, it's oversimplifying things, but just think of it that way, that being angry at sin, being angry at the 
injustice to God's reputation or the lessening or the blasphemy against his name, those types of things like Jesus at the temple are a little safer place to be angry about. So don't leave this afternoon thinking that God doesn't sanction anger. Instead, learn to rightly divide appropriate anger and the appropriate use of anger from inappropriate anger. Have the Holy Spirit so filling your life that when you're angry for the right reasons, he gives you self-control. And there is intentionality. You saw from that passage Jesus making a whip of cords. Right? There's, he's thinking through that. He's planning. What am I going to do in this expression of righteous zeal? Now before we talk about a solution for unrighteous or sinful anger, let's look at one more example in the Bible besides Cain. And the example might surprise you because I'm not going to go to Moses who kills the Egyptian overseer or Samson who goes swinging a jawbone through a bunch of Philistines or even Jonah angry and hateful towards the Assyrians so much that he's willing to give up his own life rather than do God's will. I'm not going to go to any of those, but I'm going to have you go to 1 Samuel 25. In fact, go ahead and turn there with me. It's the story of David. The story of David and a man named Nabal and a woman named Abigail. And 1 Samuel 25 is describing an incident in which David and his men, they're on the run from King Saul. They're camping in a location where there's a flock of sheep. Who owns the sheep? It's a wealthy man named Nabal, who's, who's got, according to this section, uh, 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, having them sheared. And David and his men, his 600 men, they're hungry. But they don't go and they don't demand food from the flock. Instead, they protect Nabal's flock from predators. They protect them from marauders in the area. And eventually, after having done that for a while, it's a feast day. And so David sends 10 of his men to Nabal, telling them in verse 5, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace. Be to you and to your house and to all that you have. Your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So it was expected, especially on this festive celebration, that those, well, in particular, who had protected your family and your flocks, but just in general, strangers would be welcome to a meal at your home. But Nabal, according to verse 10, answers the servants by saying, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread? And my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men that I don't know where they are from. So we see this contrast. David's request, humble, respectful, not demanding sheep or payment for his services, didn't show up with 600 men, kind of with an intimidating threat of feed me or else. Instead, he sends emissaries who remind Nabal of the kind of the conventions of hospitality and kindness that 
that are supposed to saturate the people of God. Tells him again how he's protecting Nabal's flock. Says, check with your own men. And expects, asks that his men would find favor in Nabal's eyes. And, but you don't get a proper response. This is a fallen world. And Nabal's name in the Hebrew actually means fool. He gives a foolish response. You might be tempted to think that Nabal doesn't know who David is, but trust me, he knows. Not only is David well known to the people of Engedi and all of this region due to Saul's search for David, but David is known throughout Israel for slaying Goliath. He's known for his leadership of the Israelite army. And Nabal even refers to David as the son of Jesse. Besides, no escaped servant has 600 mighty men following him. I think it's safe to say that this is an insult. It's something along the line of who does David think that he is? He's no more to me than some escaped slave. He wants to make me take my bread that belongs to my people and give it to him? Like that's going to happen. And think about how you would have responded if you were David. What would have been in your mind as a military leader, as an anointed king, as the one who's given of his time and, and his effort to protect this man's flock, so, who's trying to deal with hungry men? And this in the face, like I said, of the conventions of hospitality, like being slapped in the face with Nabal's foolish response. Now, what do you do in response when you face an employer that accuses you of what you didn't do or that neighbor who seems intent on making your life miserable or a spouse who doesn't seem to care for you as much as you expect or an extended family member who gossips behind your back? What happens? What do you desire? How do you respond? Remember the causes of anger that I spoke about earlier, of frustration and irritation, envy, jealousy, fear, and the responses are yelling or bitterness, violence. What is David's response? We read David said to his men in verse 13, every man gird on his sword. 400 armed men accompany David. And the suddenness, I think, of David's response and the susceptibility to anger can be a warning to us all how sometimes we can be simmering out there in the desert with the frustrations that maybe not even related to Nabal but the frustrations of having to run from a Saul of being hungry of dealing with all of the things of living in the wilderness and being on the run those, you know, when I said earlier about simmering, I don't just mean always simmering against that one person, that one relationship. I just mean, do we have a lifestyle, a life pattern of simmering? So that sometimes when these situations happen, it, that was the thing, you know, what we even have a phrase for it, right? The straw that broke the camel's back. That was the one thing that, was, that happened. And suddenly we break. Well, that's what it was necessary for David. Gird on your sword. Follow me. He's intent upon killing Nabal and every single male in Nabal's household. So as I said at the beginning, the problem is not first a problem of behavior. It's foremost a problem of the heart. 
that reveals what happens when, and I like the illustration that Paul Tripp gives in, in his series, What Did You Expect? He says, imagine your life like a, a bottle of water that's full. And when it's shaken, what, what comes out of that bottle? It's whatever's filling your hearts, whatever's filling your mind. So when you're shaken in these moments, what, what's going to be shaken out of you in these types of situations? What heart attitudes are you nursing internally? When we are tempted towards anger, temptation is all about forgetting who God is and focusing on, on the, the injustices of the moment. But remember, you do not need to take vengeance. Your God will take care of the Nabals of this world. You don't have to panic at the lack of provisions. Your God is your ultimate provider. You don't need to worry about your reputation. You have acceptance with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are a different and peculiar people. Now before we leave this example of 1 Samuel 25, I want to point out this other person in the story, Abigail. We're told in 1 Samuel 25 that Abigail recognized her husband's folly and the consequences of of what might happen if, if someone like David, a king and a warrior, might respond poorly to Nabal's offense. And so verse 18 says that she took 200 loaves of bread and two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sails of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on before me and I'm coming after you. This is a smart lady. David, in the meantime, has said to his men, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in this wilderness so that nothing was missed in all that belongs to him and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. So here's Abigail. Here's David. They're about to meet. And when David meets Abigail on the road, she falls at his feet and says, O me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity fall. Please let your maidservant Speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord Lord, regard this scoundrel Nabal. (laughs) The scoundrel who is my husband. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Therefore, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives. Listen to what she says. Since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house. Because he fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you, to seek your life. See how they know his story? But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. 
and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out us from the pocket of a sling. Again, going back to the story of, of David and Goliath, right? She, what is she doing? She's reminding David, David, calm down. Cool down for a moment. Remember who you are. You are the servant, the loved one of God. You are the one that God has, has already used as an instrument. You are the one who's won mighty battles out of faith for God. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken to you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will not be a grief to you. How many times in the past have you had those moments of anger and that uncontrolled outburst that has haunted you for weeks and months and years? And you look back on those times and you go, if I could only take that back. And that's what Abigail is saying. Don't let this be a memory. Don't let this be one of those times where you lost it and you did something that you shouldn't have done. And she says, Nor offensive heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. And what I see in Abigail, just, just as we understand what Abigail is saying to David, which is something that is good for us to hear, but also what we see Abigail doing. She's interceding on behalf of her foolish husband. She is a great picture of a believer. And what should be our responsibility with the fools of this world? We should be more quickly to be like Abigail than like David in this particular instance. God raised up Abigail so that a wise wife of a foolish man would be used as an instrument of grace in this moment and turn David and 400 men from their course of action. And that's a type of grace and intervention that you and I don't often pray about. We don't pray typically for the grace of refinement and, and pointing out the sins of our mind and our hearts. We pray for the grace of relief. We pray that God would get rid of this person that's an irritant to us. Pray that God would take vengeance now so that I can watch it. <laughs> right? That's what we typically pray for. We don't pray for the grace of God to intervene in a person like Abigail and reveal where our sins are. How often are you thanking the Lord for the trials of God's grace that are exposing your needs for strength from God? How often are you asking the Lord on your knees, Lord, please help me not to be simmering and seething. Help me not to be nursing this root of bitterness in my life. Help me to remember who I am what you have given me, what you've called me to do. I don't want to, my life to be marked by these instances like a David that I would never forget. And what is Abigail's reward? David honors her intercession. Just as time and again, God honors the intercession of his saints. Verse 32 says, Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. 
You know, and that as he cools down and as he listens to these words of wisdom and grace from Abigail, he realizes, he says, blessed is your advice. Blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, Surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. And of course, we know from the rest of the story that even though David did not take the life of Nabal, even though he didn't go back and, and return, in a sense, or, or take a vengeance on Nabal, Nabal was not forever spared from vindication and and. God's judgment. The, the death of Nabal came in the same way as the Bible describes death for many fools as a sudden surprise. And that's why the Bible also reminds you, God is your vindicator. You do not have to get revenge. You don't have to get even. You don't have to return evil for evil. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could become a people that instead of finding ourselves so easily irritated and moved to frustration and anger over men and women like a Nabal, that instead we were like Abigail and moved to intercede for them on, on their behalf before God's throne. Imagine if instead of the hard attitudes of irritation and frustration, and anger and bitterness, there will replace the, the hard attitudes of Galatians 5.22 of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. God wants that when we're shaken, when we're squeezed, that out comes this good fruit of the Holy Spirit, this, ten, this quickness to intercede for those of the world like Nabal. Now, it may be that you have offended some people in your anger. Maybe you have been an angry person, and that's a reputation that you have. Or maybe you have some of those so situations. Maybe there weren't, wasn't an Abigail for you at the right time, or perhaps you didn't listen to an Abigail. Solomon says that with anger we cause strife, we abound in sin, and that probably means that there are people that we've offended. And Matthew 5.23 says if you bring your gift to the altar and remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way, which means go your way towards them. <laughs> go to them. Unfortunately, we like to perform a ceremony of religion without addressing our hearts. We'd like to all come up, you know, come up, take communion, go back to our seats and sing and hear a sermon and so on, and, and it all can wash over us without ever coming down into the heart. And then, perhaps if, if it does get there a little bit, we say, well, isn't really our sin against God? What if, if I'm okay with Him, why can't the worship, my worship then cover the angry things that I did and said? What are we saying in that? It's embarrassing, isn't it, to have to go and confront our sin. It's humbling to have to go to a person that we've offended and say, yeah, 
I acted like a neighbor. I, I acted like a fool in the what I did. And I rushed to my own vengeance and vindication like a David. But as your sin is against God, that's true, and he does forgive you, vertical forgiveness does not remove the need for horizontal restitution and reconciliation. Because strife is caused by anger, because sin abounds in that, we have to address the effects of what has happened if we are angry people. King David once wrote in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And we need to hear that. If I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So if I am nursing these bitternesses and these grudges and these frustrations and these irritations and I'm either not letting them go and asking the Lord to forgive me and put me in the right place, if I'm not willing to go and seek restitution, reconciliation with the people with whom I have ought, then what Psalm 66 suggests is God will not hear our prayers. That's serious. We have to resolve this issue. And in Matthew 5.23 implies we do it immediately or very quickly. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 that we should follow peace with all men and holiness lest the root of bitterness spring up in trouble and by it defile many. Proverbs 13.16 says a wise man thinks ahead, a fool doesn't think. And then he brags about it. When you're angry, you need to stop and consider before you act, before you speak. Proverbs 25.11 says, A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Do you want to get to a place where you're not always fighting to keep the lid on that simmering pot? Wouldn't it be nice to have a completely different reaction like we've been describing where that Galatian fruit of the Spirit response when we're shaken comes out? Well, as Paul says in Romans 12 too, we must be transformed from within by the renewing of our minds. Did you know that God says that He can renew your mind so that you will not even be affected when someone doesn't reciprocate your kindness? When someone says something insulting to you or when someone has done that same irritating thing for the 50th time and this time they did it on purpose. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then, as if that didn't hurt enough, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. You know, sometimes we read this and, and we, we read it so generically and, and blawly. If your enemy is hungry, well, what, what does normally happens with hungry people who are not governed by the fruit of the Spirit? They tend to be grumpy, grouchy, demanding, frustrating, irritating people, right? When they're hungry. And it says, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will actually, it says, heap coals of fire on his head. What, do, what does that mean? It means that 
There will come a time when God, as your vindicator, his judgment will come for all. And the fact of the matter is that as you are responding to these irritations and frustrations with kindness, with self-sacrifice, with service, with intercession, with all the things that we've been describing, it's increasing the judgment for this person if they don't respond properly. It's not your problem. Boy, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get to the point where we were able to say to ourselves, this is not my problem. It's not my problem. The Lord will work it out. I'm not going to retaliate against the wrong done to myself. I'm going to step aside as, as God has said. I'm going to let the wrath of man work even to my harm. That's what the Bible says. And in fact, I'm even going to actually serve this person. I'm going to pray for them. I am not going to respond like them. This is not my problem, and I'm not going to let it become my problem. What allows you to do that? Because God himself promises to protect your interests and to give you a name, to give you an inheritance, and to give you a life of blessing. When Cain was losing control, God walked alongside of him and said, Cain, think, remember, if you'll walk in faith before me, you will be accepted. And what that acceptance means is it's not just that I'll say, oh, good job, great sacrifice. What it means is I am your God. What it means is I have rivers of pleasures at my right hand. What it means is that I promise you the new wine and the new harvest, and I promise you an eternity of blessings where every promise is answered yes in Christ. That's what it means to be accepted. And Cain should have said, you're right. I have been frustrated. I don't know why my sacrifice wasn't accepted. Help me understand. He should have said, I, you're right. I'm, I'm angry and I'm having trouble with self-control. And I don't know why I keep acting. You know, I don't know why I'm simmering inside. But help me be satisfied and content and fight for joy. When Jesus told the disciples that they would have to have these kinds of attitudes, you know what they said? Are you kidding? That's what they said. I mean, that's English, modern translation of, well, then you'll have to increase our faith. It means, are you kidding? How can I do that? But at least they said, Lord, if you are serious, then increase our faith. And so my encouragement to you is to pray the same thing. If you have been struggling with anger, Pray to the Lord to increase your faith. Pray to him that you will have the attitude of Abigail. Because life in a cursed world, it's unfair. You'll be mistreated. You'll be persecuted. There are going to be irritants around you every day of your life, frustrations and so on. You'll have to suffer the hypocrisy of others. You will be dealing with the sin issues of others every day, right? Within your family, 
with your friends, neighbors, coworkers? How will you respond? Will you say, whom have I? I have the Lord. He is my strength. He is my portion forever. Everything else will perish. I'm quoting scripture right now. Everything else will perish. I will die. The things of this world will pass away. But I have the Lord and I will put my trust in him so that I might not just be self-controlled, not just be an intercessor, but so that I may declare his works. Because here's the last point to make. The way you respond to situations is not just to your benefit, whether you end up the fool or you end up being the one who is being faithful and not having things to regret. The end of the day, you're bringing glory to your Lord. When you don't respond like everyone else in this world does, when you actually do these things that Jesus asks of you, you're going to be giving glory to your God and increasing his kingdom and his name. The Bible says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how God's kingdom progresses. Overcoming evil with good. There's a purpose beyond just having self-control. It's that you will make disciples. And I pray that that would be all of these things that you have in your mind as you leave today, especially if you are one who's been suffering with self-control and anger. Let's pray. Father, we do want to not only become a people of contentment and joy, people who intercede for others like Abigail. We don't just want to be a, a people that are set apart and and not always uh, harboring bitterness and finding people step out of our way because we struggle with anger, Lord. Those are all givens. Those are for our good. But Lord, we do want to be a people that will be ambassadors for your kingdom, that will see your name spread throughout the world, and that will bring glory to your reputation and to your throne. And so I pray that you would use us in how we respond in, in situations that normally result in us being angry and becoming harsh and bitter and frustrated and all the things that, that happen. I pray that you would work in us to be a people of peace, a people of kindness. And Lord, may people take notice and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.